If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Revelations 13 and one verse. I want you to look at it as I read it so that it will mean much more to you. Revelations, the 13th chapter and verse 15. Revelations 13 and verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. You'll notice that the word he refers to that which takes place in the four previous verses referring to the United States of America. The words give life Every one of you who have been married and as a couple have brought forth a child know what it is to give life. The image of the beast is a new creature and this creature will be like the beast as described in the very first verses of this chapter. It says to cause, it will use force. It says to worship, that means to obey. And it says should be killed, that means there will be persecutions. Let me read it once more. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause, that as many as that would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now as our introduction this morning, let me begin by a known fact. When two individuals of the opposite sex unite themselves in marriage and that union is consummated, a child will be produced who will inherit the characteristics of both parents. However, one parent may predominate with its genes. For example, those who knew my father and then know me, they say that I am just like my father. I look like him, I speak like him, I act like him, I work like him. I am not my father, but I am an image of my father. Now, in Revelations, the 13th chapter, in this prophecy, we find that two religions in America will join themselves together, and this union will produce an exact image of one of these religions. Now, let's see how this will take place. This lamb-like beast of Revelation 13, verse 11, it says, has two horns. One horn represents republicanism and the other horn represents Protestantism, the predominant religion of America. These two horns represent the separation of church and state, but not for long, for there is to be a change in which the government will join with the Protestant religious power 
to carry out and enforce its teachings which have come from another church, pagan Rome. And when this takes place, we will have an image to the beast in America. For over 200 years, Protestantism has been exemplified in America as that lady in New York Harbor, the Statue of Liberty. This country has provided a sanctuary of freedom and worship for millions who have come from all over the world. And because this nation has done this, God has blessed this nation. Above all other nations in the world, people have come here for the blessings that it brings forth. But a change is taking place. Protestantism is flirting with Catholicism and has been carrying on an illicit relationship under the guise of what is known today as an ecumenical behavior. And as a result, there is bound to be a shotgun marriage. I don't know as you're acquainted with that term. For 13 years I worked in the Southern Union and in that union was the state of Tennessee. And that's where the hillbillies are located. And it's common knowledge among the hillbillies that whenever they find a young woman who is pregnant that has not been married, the parents go into their cabin, they take down the shotgun, and they search for the man that is responsible. And when they find him, it doesn't take long when he looks down the barrel of a shotgun that he decides to marry the woman. That's called a shotgun marriage. And when this happens, popery and Protestantism will give life to an exact image of its father, the beast of Revelation 13. Church and state will no longer be separate Religious freedom will be a thing of the past. This new form of religion will demand that the government enforce its dogmas under the threat of death. And now the question. What conditions will exist in Protestant America that will bring a shotgun marriage into existence? This morning I want you to look carefully with me at our society our government, and our predominant religion to see if we can find the answers. There have been great changes in America over the past 200 years. These changes have brought about corruption in morals, in politics, and in religion. And I feel that few of us here this morning have really any conception or comprehension that this nature, that this great country of ours has become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe I can open your eyes, as mine were opened a few years ago when I was in the General Conference and I was sent to San Francisco to care for a problem. Hotel reservations and the plane ticket were given to me. I had no idea where I was to stay. I arrived in San Francisco about one o'clock in the morning I went to the airport bus and gave them the name of the hotel where I had reservations. About 1.30, I was delivered to the door. 
I went in, I checked in, I found that I was on the 12th floor of this great hotel in San Francisco. I went to bed quickly because I knew I had a big day ahead and I had to get up early. And so I set the alarm and went down quite early in the morning to get some food to eat for breakfast. Can you imagine my surprise? And I walked into the dining room to discover something I had never seen before. Every table was set with just two chairs. And at each, two, at each table, there were two men. One was dressed as a he-man, a macho. And the other was dressed as a seductive woman. This would-be woman was dressed in tight-fitting female clothing. I want to say she, but he was dressed with silk stockings, high heel shoes as a woman would wear, with a permanent wave, lipstick so thick that you could cut it with a knife, and wearing a see-through blouse with a padded bra, all the works. The air was sickening with perfume. I almost gagged. The atmosphere was rotten, nauseating and immoral. I was in Sodom. I remember those words of Genesis 13, verse 13. But the men of Sodom were wicked sinners before the Lord exceedingly. I wonder if you realize that every day you are living in Sodom. I mean by this, in the general atmosphere that surrounds your daily life. Every moment of your life is filled with some evil excitement, murder mysteries, disco music, soap operas, every thought presented today on television programs is leading to immorality. It's just like old Sodom. I was interested in archaeology's recent discovery as they were digging in a city that was near Old Sodom and they discovered some clay tablets. And on these tablets was described the prizes which the Sodomites presented to those who could invent the most degrading immoral acts. Look at our cities today. We're surrounded with beer drinkers, Liquor flows like water. Around us are thousands of dope-swallowing, cocaine-sniffing, acid-blowing minds, many of whom are devil-possessed, and every day it's going from bad to worse. Indecent exposure on the beaches to topless nudity in the nightclubs. The so-called music that we hear all around us has the thundering beat of demons. One day, Dean and I were taking our morning walk. It was an early Sunday morning, and we were surprised to see the sheriff's car coming to a screeching halt opposite where we were walking. I could see that the officer was visibly disturbed from a night's activity. I'll never forget the words of his conversation and I quote, this nation is going to hell with its rock music and its drugs. You know, rock music 
is everywhere. You hear it in the grocery store, in the automobile shop, in the eating establishments, even in the rest homes, and in the commercial firms. I went to the co-op yesterday to get something in Roseburg, and here was this lousy music. You even hear it in the doctor's office when you're sick, and heaven forbid, it's creeping into the churches of today under the name of Christian rock. And I want to tell you there's nothing Christian about it. Rock music has always produced rebellion. Notice the newscasts wherever there is a great gathering to hear rock music and you will always find that it ends with people being hurt and millions of dollars of destruction. It's a proven fact that rock music is Satan's music and it makes teenagers rebellious. You know, you can hardly drive a block in our cities today without seeing a video store with advertising adult movies. The streets are filled with parades of gays who are boldly demanding their rights. Babies in diapers today are taught murder from the TV screen. Pornography is on the increase. Incest and rape are alarming. In cities like Los Angeles, two out of every three women can expect to be raped in their lifetime. Crime is completely out of hand. Innocent children are being shot to death in driveway shootings. Last Thursday, I went to Roseburg. Thank God I have found a barber that is a real Christian, not of this faith, but he reads his Bible every day. He was talking to me. He made this statement. He said, Brother Nelson, he said, I may be way out, but he said, I believe that within 10 years in America, it will not be safe for anybody to walk down the street of any city. People are beginning to wake up. They're beginning to see that evil is all about us. Our prisons are so full of criminals that they have to let some out to let others in. And there is developing now a great cry in America for law and order to return. People are being fed up. What has caused this? Protestantism has failed. Protestantism has failed to produce a law-abiding, God-fearing society. It had 200 years to do so. Why is it that it failed? God equipped the Protestant churches with the most potent weapon that he could possibly give to his people the word of God. Why then has Protestant failed? Because Protestantism has apostatized from the word of God. How did it happen? If you will go back in your minds to the year 1844, this nation was young, this nation was in the full blessings of God, churches were spreading everywhere, and it was time for the Lord to come. And through his ministers, 
he gave a strong call for getting ready for the second coming of Christ. But the people refused. The ministry of these churches turned it aside. They would have nothing to do with it. And they rejected the call of God. And may I remind you that once an individual or a church refuses the mighty convictions of the Holy Spirit, they have no defense to deceptions. They had to turn somewhere when they turned from the voice of God to get ready for his second coming. And so they turned to higher education that the ministry might have something to hold on to their congregations. But higher education only elevated the human above the divine. And the results, it was soon taught that all biblical laws were only a reflection of the culture of Bible times and they were not God's commands. The highly educated mind went a little bit further and stated that everyone had a right to choose for himself what he would follow or reject in the word of God. And thus the way was open to reject the Ten Commandments. Now let me show you how this has worked in my own experience. I recall in the days of my evangelism, no sooner did I pitch my tent in a city, that every Protestant church in town put on a revival. And the first thing they did was to preach that God's law was no more, that God's law came to an end when Jesus Christ died on the cross. Now these ministers knew very, very well that there was nothing in the Old Testament or in the Old in New Testament that could say that God had changed the fourth commandment from the Sabbath to Sunday. But by preaching that the law was no more, that it was no longer binding, they were able to convince the membership of their churches not to have anything to do with that crazy Adventist preacher who was preaching in that tent, telling people they ought to obey God and keep his commandments. But little did these preachers realize the results of such preaching, for they were doing away with God's law. They were condoning sin. They were planting the seeds that has led to the lawlessness that is found everywhere in this country. For everyone now was free to do as he pleased, and for over 150 years in America, this teaching has existed among Protestant teachers and has become a part of their Bible doctrine. And as a result, we live today in a godless age. God's law is no more, as has been taught by Protestantism. And the results, our country has become like Sodom. But for your encouragement, let me tell you that there is a change coming in Protestantism. People are so fed up, they realize that something has gone wrong and there is a demand coming for law and order. They say, we can't go on like this. We can't go out of our houses to be shot at. We can't go to the grocery store. We can't go anywhere. We are not safe. 
our women and our young ladies are not free to walk around anymore. And every agency of government is desperately looking for an answer. What are they going to do? And silently within the churches today, there is developing within Protestantism what many feel is the answer to lawlessness and rebellion. Protestantism is now becoming pregnant with an illegitimate child. And this child has the characteristics of Romanism. And we can see in this religious change a development of the image of the beast beginning to take place. Let me tell you what I recently discovered. A book was brought to my attention called The Institute of Biblical Laws. It was written by Rauschus John Rushduni, published by the Presbyterian Fundamentals. I discovered in this book a complete switch in Protestant teachings regarding the law of God. It was so amazing I couldn't hardly believe it. It taught that there must be a return to Bible doctrines and it sounded much like I was reading in a historic Adventist book. I'm going to quote some quotations to you now from the first 40 pages of this book. I want you to listen to them carefully. Remember, this comes from the Presbyterian Church. It starts out by talking about heresy. What is modern heresy today? I'm quoting. It is modern heresy to hold that the law of God has no meaning nor any binding force for men today. That's astounding. Again, it talks about grace and law, telling us that it has always been the same and always will be the same. Let me quote it to you. Quote, the God of Scripture, whose grace and law remain the same in every age, because God, as the sovereign and absolute Lord, changes not, nor does he need to change. If that isn't Adventist doctrine, I, I tell you, I was astounded when I read this. Then it tells us the time has come that we must get down to business. As we study the Bible, we must study the law. Let me read it to you. To attempt to study the scripture without studying the law is to deny it. I tell you, when I read this, I, I could hardly believe what my eyes were, were telling me. Then he goes on to tell us that Christ's atonement was to restore man to law-keeping. Just the opposite from what preachers have been teaching, and you've heard them on the radio, You've read their books. You've seen them on television. Just the opposite of what's being preached. Listen to this. The purpose of Christ's atoning work was to restore man to a position of covenant keeping, to enable man to keep the law by freeing him from the law of sin and death, Romans 8:27 that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 4. Man is restored to a position of law-keeping. 
I want to tell you something's happening out here in the Protestant churches. Then it talks about sanctification and its purpose is to help you keep the law. I'm quoting, in man's salvation, in man's sanctification, in that man grows in grace as he grows in law keeping. For the law is the way of sanctification. <laughs> you know, I just sat back and just shook my head. Never have I read any Protestant books of any kind that is so clear and concise about the law of God. Listen to this one. Man's justification is by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Man's sanctification is by means of the law of God. Why, well, say amen. Then it tells us that the purpose of grace, and get this, the purpose of grace is to help you keep the law. It doesn't take the place of the law. I'm quoting, the purpose of grace is not to set aside the law, but to fulfill the law and enable man to keep the law. If the law was so serious in the sight of God that it would require the death of Jesus Christ and the only begotten Son of God to make an atonement for man's sin, isn't it seem strange that for God then to proceed to abandon his law? This is the kind of thing that I used to preach when I pitched my tent. And this is, I'm sure, what you have been telling people when you give them Bible studies in your home. Let me read it to you. To hold, I'm quoting, as churches do, such as the Roman Catholic, the Greek Orthodox, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, and all others virtually, that the law was good for Israel, but that Christians and the church are under grace without the law, or under some higher, newer law, is implicit polytheism. I'll tell you, when I read that, I said out loud, Amen. And then it tells us that the atonement of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, Jesus dying in our place, it says the whole doctrine of Christ's atonement upholds the unity of the law and judgment and grace. Well, that's the three angels' messages. And then, notice this, it uses the word obedience. And you know, in this ecumenical movement today, there has been a growing sense that don't talk about obedience. That may discourage people in having a love experience with God. But listen to this, quoting, Some are afraid of the word obedience, as if it would weaken love and the idea of a new creation. Obedience and the keeping of the commandments of the one we love is the proof of that love and the delight of the new creation. Did I do all right and not do it in obedience? I should do nothing right because my true relationship and heart reference to God would be left out. This is love that we keep his commandments. I want to tell you, bless his heart, this is Adventism. This is historic Adventism. 
Then he says, the lawlessness that is in the world today is the result of preachers who have been preaching that there is no law. Listen to this. The alternative to law is not grace. It is lawlessness. But then I almost fell off my chair when I read this. When you change the law, you are changing God's. You know, I remember in my evangelism, I, I used to put on the pictures on the screen of the Ten Commandments and a priest up there with a chisel, tampering and taking out the seventh day and writing in the first. Listen to this. One absolute, unchanging God means one absolute, unchanging law. Man's social applications and approximations of the righteousness of God may alter, they may vary or waver, but the absolute law does not. To speak of the law is for Israel, but not for the Christian, is not only to abandon the law, but to abandon the God of the law. Since there is only one true God and his law is the expression of his unchanging nature and righteousness, to abandon the biblical law for another law system is to change God's. The moral collapse of Christendom, all this lawlessness, is a product of this current process of changing God's. I never have read anything in my life that is so clear and concise as to the problems which the United States of America today is facing in its lawlessness. But all this divine Seventh-day Adventist doctrine comes to a screeching halt when he discusses the Fourth Commandment. As I read the chapter, there was not one text given from the scripture Nothing was quoted from the Bible as to why they would keep Sunday instead of Sabbath. This paragraph I'm quoting to you sums all their teaching up. It says the Hebrew redemption was celebrated in the Sabbath, meaning the fourth commandment, the seventh day. The Christian Sabbath, the first day, commemorates Christ's triumph over sin and death and hence it is celebrated on the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week. And to reject this day is to reject Christ's redemption and to seek salvation by another inadmissible way. God forbid. What they have been talking about all the way through about the law and its purpose and to change it, you are changing God's, but when they come to the fourth commandment, they openly do what they have been condemning. But I want to tell you, there are millions of God's faithful in these other churches who when this strange doctrine is finally brought together in the development of the image of the beast that they are going to see, as you and I can see so clearly this morning, and they will decide not to change gods and they will join with us. And it's going to happen. But now follow me. In this new teaching 
and zeal for the law. They are also saying that the law has a penalty today just as it had in the day of Moses, in the day of the Old Testament, and that the death penalty must be brought about today as in the past. And they have gone further. In this book they are teaching that all of the ceremonial laws of Moses are still binding and today are to have the death penalty. And it is here that we discover the image of the beast developing in apostate Protestantism. Before I go any further, let me remind you that Ellen White has exactly told us what the image of the beast is. Great Controversy, page 445. The image of the beast represents that form of apostate Protestantism which will be developed when the Protestant churches shall seek the aid of the civil power for the enforcement of their dogmas. Now, in this book, you will discover that they are talking about a new kind of doctrine. It is called Dominion Theology of Biblical Law. Let me repeat it. Dominion Theology of Biblical Law. And they give three proofs for this new doctrine. In Genesis 1:26, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion. Then they quote Psalms 8, 6, thou madest him to have dominion. And then they quote Micah 4, 8, and thou, O tower of the flock, talking about Jesus, unto thee shall it come even the first dominion. So today's Protestants are beginning to consider dominion theology in the place of doing away with God's law and challenging the church members that this is what God expects of the church to do. In a book by Gary North printed on a dominion press, they even have a press that is publishing these books today, called The Biblical Practices for Political Action. I quote, Christians are challenged by God to reclaim the political realm for Jesus Christ. It is God's goal that his earthly followers eventually exercise authority over the earth in his name. In short, we must take authority over the nations with the applied rule of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to tell what they're talking about. In a time when there is intolerance developing in our country, they say, why should rapists be put back on the streets? Shoot them, get rid of them. The Old Testament taught that. Why should criminals be free to kill again? Don't put them in jail. Take them out and do away with them. Why should we be taxed to house and feed murderers at the cost of eighteen to $25,000 a year? when all we need to do, it says, is put them to death. You see, this is the old doctrine of the ceremonial laws. 
Then it says, why should gangs rule our city streets? Bring the army in, round them up, take them out and shoot them. Why permit welfare for unwed mothers? And you notice there's four states now that have put laws in them. One child they will take care of, but they're not going to pay for the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth anymore. There is an intolerance coming. Why permit drug-related violence? Take these drug dealers out and shoot them. This dominion theology has the answer, so they say. It is a call to rise up a biblical mandate to occupy secular government to do what? They're going to occupy, they're going to vote in who they're going to put and demand that it carry out the laws of the Old and the New Testament in the death penalty. I'm quoting here from Spiritual Welfare, Politics of the Religious Right, page 138 by Sarah Diamond, quote, the concept that Christians are biblically mandated to occupy all secular institutions, the government, the police department, everyone, and become the central unifying ideology for the Christian right. Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson are the leaders of this movement. And what has amazed me is that these men have made the statement that they have gotten millions over their television programs from Seventh-day Adventists. I know they preach wonderful messages. You sit there and you say, why don't some of our Adventist ministers preach like this? But in giving your money to them, did you realize the purpose? That they intend to take over the government and the day they are going to force you to follow the mark of the beast. You think of that through. This movement is called Dominion Theology, led by such men as Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and others. They are planning on a religious takeover in our government. This organization is demanding that the government produce the death penalty. And then it lists in this book the death penalty for these, I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll read two or three of them. One is for adultery. I want to tell you, they're going back to the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 22.2, if a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, both the man and the one that lay with the women, woman, so shall they be put to death. I want to tell you, they're going to clean up the homes. They say this whole problem of lawless today is a breakdown that has gone from the homes. We're going to start with the home. We're going to clean things up. We're going to do away. Anybody that does this, take them out. Then it says murder, Romans 35, 18. If he smite with a hand weapon, whereof he may die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. They're going to demand the government to clean up things. They're going to demand that they do away with murders, not put them in incarceration. Sodomy. If a man also lie with mankind, they quote Leviticus 20, 13, as he lieth with a woman, 
Both of them have committed an abomination. So they're going to do away with homosexualities. They're going to do away with lesbianism. All of these things. They are going to clean up society and do away with lawlessness. And then they list all of these. I haven't time to read them all. Rebellious children. Take them out and shoot them. For rape. For kidnapping. For witchcraft for human sacrifice, for blasphemy. I'm going to tell you, they're really going to straighten up the world, aren't they? When almost every man of an unconsecrated Christian today, he uses the word of God in some form. Going to do that? Going to take you out. And then these last three, I don't know whether these others will ever go that far. I'm not saying, but the Bible tells us in prophecy that this will come to pass lawlessness, refusing to abide by law and order. They've got an answer for such things as happened in Los Angeles, that happened this week in New York, that these men, I have seen them on television with their fish saying, this is going to happen in every city of our nation. They say, oh no it isn't. We're going to do something about this. And the law will be that you must go to church on Sunday for propagation of false doctrines. You won't hear a sermon like you're hearing today in which I say that the seventh day is the Sabbath. That is false doctrine. Take this preacher out and shoot him. And for Sabbath desecration, if you don't keep Sunday the first day, Do away with us. Now this is not some child's play. I hope you don't think I'm just giving you some fanaticism. Let me read to you once more from the Bible, Revelations 13, 15. He had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Then I'm quoting from this book again, Institute of Biblical Laws, page 279, by the Presbyterians. Warfare is not child's play. It is a grim and ugly matter. The Canaanites were under judicial death sentence by God. They were spiritually and morally degenerate. The laws assert a still valid general principle. If warfare is to destroy evil, that an evil order may be overthrown, and in some cases, some or many people must be executed. I want to tell you, there is something developing within Protestantism today. Note the significance of this declaration. As I quote on, the death penalty is undergirded in the New Testament by Christ's atoning death, which made clear that the penalty for man's transgression is death without remission. And to oppose capital punishment as prescribed by God's law is to oppose the cross of Christ. Can you see finally law and order 
becoming such a problem that every pastor in all of these Protestant churches with a cross in back of him says, listen, if you don't line up and destroy these people, you are not in favor of the cross. Think what that will do. Notice the implication. I'm quoting again page 77. Sabbath violations were capital crimes. Capital crimes are major crimes. If the Hebrew Sabbath is morally binding today, its implications and applications are equally binding. If the standards of the Hebrew Sabbath are binding, then entering a place of business on the Sabbath is morally a capital crime. You know, we live here today and we go down and shop on Sunday, you know, it hardly seems possible someday the last movements will be rapid ones. Something is going to happen and overnight we are going to find religious liberty gone. We are going to find laws. We are going to find that we are facing, as it says in the text I have written, if you don't worship the image, you are to be killed. This is God's final test. Are you getting ready for this test? I want to close today by asking a question I have often asked. When this final test comes, would you rather die than sin? No, let me put it in these words. Are you willing to die over the Sabbath question? If you are, you shall be worthy to walk through the pearly gates. And now, in closing, I feel that someone here has a question for me, and I'm going to give you that question. Brother Nelson, can you tell us how we can be sure that we are going to stand faithful in this final test? And I've got God's answer. If you are compromising today over the Sabbath, you will compromise when that test comes. And what do I mean? Are you Seventh-day Adventists watching the edges of the Sabbath? That your bath is taken, that your shoes are shined, you women try to get all of the food ready you can for the Sabbath? I'm talking about compromising. Are you working until the sun goes down and then taking? What are you doing today? If you are compromising now, you will compromise then. But if you are standing firm for God and his Sabbath today, by God's grace, you will stand firm tomorrow. Since you talked with the Lord 
and told him your heart's hidden secrets. How long since you prayed? How long since you stayed on your knees till the light shone Since your mind felt at ease, how long since your heart knew no burden? Can you call him your friend? How long has it been since you knew? cared for you. How long has it been since you knelt by your bed and prayed to the Lord up in heaven? How that he'd answer you and would keep you the long night through. How long has it been since you woke with the dawn and felt that the day Can you call him your friend? How long has it been since you knew that he cared for you? Let us stand. Loving Father, we've done some serious thinking today. How long has it been since we have really opened our heart to Thee? We need, Lord, this close connection. We need to feel Thy hand in ours. We need to have Thy law written on our hearts. We need, Lord, divine strength as we face the uncertain future. We thank God that thou hast promised that all of us who will be faithful may someday walk the streets of gold. Oh Lord, help us this week. And next Sabbath, may we be ready for a real blessing in keeping the Sabbath holy on time. For we ask it in Jesus' name.